part of our philosophy is being accessible to small businesses and early stage businesses. They are especially vulnerable because again, a lot of times they don't have huge budgets. So they think, oh man, legal is just gonna like take my entire budget. I can't afford it. And that's a, a really risky place to be in. So folks come to us at a lot of stages. I always wish people would come to us sooner because again, even just having a strategic consultation can give them a roadmap for what they should be thinking about for the next few steps in their journey. You're listening to the Legal Mastermind Podcast with your hosts, Ryan Klein and Chase Williams, the go-to podcast for learning from the experts in the legal community about effective ways to grow and manage your law firm. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Legal Mastermind Podcast. Today, I have the founder and managing partner of Schraedman Law. It's Jessica Schraedman. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation. So am I. And it sounds to me like you've just gone through something was exciting and and probably uh, a little difficult and and new and scary, which would be acquiring another law firm. So I figured that'd be as good a place as any to start. Yeah, definitely. Scary is a great um, adjective for that. I recently acquired a basically a co-counsel that I've worked with for a number of years. Diane Chubb, Chubb IP Law was her law firm that she was operating for 20 or so years. Um, And we had worked together on a number of projects and I had really been looking to hire a managing partner for our copyrights and trademarks practice. And things just combined in a really perfect way that presented this opportunity. And scary is definitely the right word. I was looking to hire one attorney and I ended up acquiring two attorneys and a paralegal. Um, we have just passed our two month mark and I'm very carefully tracking our progress and watching our break even points and things like that. Uh, but it has been a great experience and, um, and we're all feeling really good for the future. Now, what did you learn new in this process? Because, you know, we didn't really get into your background, which, which we can, but I know you help uh, businesses with a lot of intellectual property needs, uh, legal disputes and and things like that. So this was, you know, a business, you know, adding to your business, not maybe not intellectual property, but what did you know going in and what did you learn during the process that was really brand new? Yeah, so I think I knew the most important things I needed to know, which were that I trusted Diane. I knew Diane. I had a relationship with Diane. I trusted her both as a person and also as a professional. I had had firsthand experience of how she interacts with clients, the quality of her work, her level of expertise, um, her general life philosophies, which also translate into her work ethic and professional ethics and things like that. So really that was the most important thing for me in hiring anybody was, is this somebody I can trust to deliver the highest level of 
legal advice and counsel and work product to our clientele base. Because as you mentioned, we work predominantly with small business owners, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals, and their needs are very different from the needs of larger enterprises, corporations, and things like that. So trust was the most important, and I knew that going in. Um, what I learned from the process is definitely all of the hypotheses that you can go through and making a decision like this, particularly the financial models and the financial hypotheses, there are going to be unknowns that pop up or, or maybe the data that you have um, doesn't exactly translate kind of post acquisition um, because there's always going to be a transition and you can have a theory about how those things are going to go, but until you're actually in it, uh, you don't really know. So definitely my biggest lesson learned was to keep running all of the financial analyses and hypotheses and, and business models so that you can be like even more prepared. I think we did a really great job, um, but there definitely is room for improvement. But I, I feel like that's probably my life philosophy in general. There's always room for improvement. Now, and was this acquisition uh, more to get in depth on practice areas that you were already working on, or is this more to expand your law firm into, into newer areas? Yeah, so we have always operated as a business and intellectual property law firm. Our motto is that we transform entrepreneurs and creatives into badass business owners. Most of our clients are, as I mentioned, creatives and independents and, and small business owners. Um, and especially in today's world, IP, whether it's branding or creations or inventions, IP is really making up the bulk of a business's assets these days. So we've always been in that sphere. The need to hire somebody to lead that effort really, I mean, it just came from, from my needs and my limitations. I, when I compare myself to somebody like Diane, who has been focusing on nothing but copyrights and trademarks for 30 years, you know, I feel like I know nothing. I, I definitely know quite a bit, but to, to be able to put somebody in the lead who has seen more than I have seen, who knows more than I know, who has more unique perspectives and ways of thinking about things. Um, I just, I wanted to be able to provide our clients with the best of the best. Um, and as a solo being responsible for the marketing and the sales and the vision and building out the systems and doing the legal production on within both practice areas. Um, it has always been my goal to hire others to support the work. And thankfully, Diane fit the bill perfectly. Well, you must be doing something right. As you mentioned, you, you were a solo, you know, before this acquisition uh, and, are, and are growing and have kind of carved out a, uh, I don't know if I would call it a niche, but you're in a niche with this within law, which you know most lawyers have have niched down. What would you attribute your success to into growing your firm to this point? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are other attorneys, and 
everybody's looking for tips on how to grow or become more efficient. So anything that you can share with them? Yeah, well, I'm, first I will thank you. I will take the the compliment of, of being a, a success. I often feel like I'm messing up all the time. So it's it's nice to be seen that way. So hands down, a lot of hard work. Like, I think that there is maybe a misconception that when you work for yourself, it's so much easier. Um, and it's not like maybe you can get along with your boss a little bit better. You know, you know, when your boss needs some space, you know, um, when your boss is in a good mood, but the amount of work, I, I mean, I've worked more since owning the law firm than, than I've ever worked. And, and also the stress and the anxiety is different. It, may not be more or less because, you know, especially in large firms, I know that levels of, of stress and anxiety can be very high, but you just have to know that and be prepared for that going in. Like you're going to work really hard. It's going to consume your thoughts all day, every day. Um, for me, just always remembering why I am doing it helps me get through those moments. Um, and also acknowledging when you just need to rest. Like if, if, if I didn't set boundaries with myself, I would work seven days a week from sunrise to, to sunset. Um, and then other than that, systematizing what you're doing. So that was maybe a, a lesson that I had to learn. I hired my first assistant about three months into opening the law firm. And I trained my assistant. My assistant was great. A year later, my assistant had to move across the world. So I had to hire a new person and I trained that person. And, and I didn't have you know, the checklists, the policies, the procedures. I wasn't, I hadn't created materials needed to like easily replicate that so that I wasn't the one doing it every time. Now, if you ask my team, I'm just like nuts for policies and procedures and video tutorials and checklists and, and all of that. I, the, the more that you can automate, to use a very popular term these days, um, will really save you a lot of time. Did you have a guide for that? You know, because we, you know, we operate on EOS, you know, the, the, the business system was made popular by the book Traction. Did you have guides? Are these just, you just sat down and said, all right, if I hire an assistant, this is the scope of work for this person, no matter who it is, or or how did you get to that, that point? In the beginning, it was definitely a lot of trial and error and, you know, figuring things out. I definitely um, had some mentors and, I, I've been an athlete since I was very young. So I'm accustomed to having coaches and it just kind of dawned on me that, you know, just like, I didn't know what I was doing when I first became a swimmer. I also didn't really know what I was doing when I first became a business owner. And so I sought out people that could coach me. So I, I did engage a business coach, um, maybe around like year 
sometime between year one and year two. And they gave me some of these pointers uh, for sure. And having mentors that that you can talk to, you know, that are happy to contribute to your growth and kind of give you the ins and outs and the secret tips, that's definitely helpful. Um, I will also say that a lot of it was really trial and error and banging my head against a wall and trying to just recognizing like, oh my gosh, I can't keep doing this thing. So how can I change that? And, and just kind of doing the research, asking the questions to figure it out. Yeah, uh, you're kind of forced into it. If you're, I'll say, just a lawyer working at a law firm, you do 90% of your work on what you want to do, what you love to do, what you're good at. But as a business owner, you need to manage everything, the things that you're terrible at, the things that you're good at, and you have to do it all you know, in that same time window, which... It makes sense now when you were talking about working seven days a week, you know, as a swimmer, I'm not a swimmer, but I've known swimmers. And I think that's probably, you've got to be the most dedicated athlete, you know, to, to do that type of a schedule where it's, it's usually early mornings in the pool and it's hours of work and two a day. So that's, is that kind of where you got some of your work ethic from doing that early on? Yeah, probably. And, and also definitely being the first in my family born in America and having been raised by Russian Jewish parents, I, I think that discipline was really ingrained in me from a very early age. Like I think discipline um, and hard work were values that my parents passed on to me from probably the moment I was born. So it definitely takes discipline and, and commitment that is for sure. Now you work with other businesses, you know, with, with IP and uh, contract negotiations and things. What, what would you say is most important there? Uh, I had assumed that there's businesses out there that are maybe in a, in a situation where you are, where they're growing fast and there's a hundred things on their plate and they're not sure what to, what to work on first, you know, but if you've been in business long enough, you realize you know, the more work you put into the contracts and protecting your IP earlier, I'll, you'll be a lot better off down the line if you've got those things in place. So can you kind of share with, you know, maybe someone who might be, whether they're an attorney or a business person who's looking at growing on the protection of IP and, and making sure the contracts are in place? Yeah. So it's similar to what I was saying about my own path, like recognizing what I don't know and recognizing my own weaknesses and seeking out experts who know more. Um, so I serve as general counsel for a lot of our clients. So um, I am running our, our corporate practice and it's a lot of general counsel, um, which oftentimes overlaps with kind of business strategizing, business planning and things like that. And most of the time, the first thing that I'm doing with our clients is having what we refer to as a strategic consultation, where we sit down and we talk about everything that the client has going on, that the client wants to do, their long-term visions, the things that they have currently in motion, the things that they're thinking about putting in motion, and then prioritizing and identifying what do you need now? What can you wait on? Uh, especially again with with small business owners and entrepreneurs that don't have huge budgets, just being really clear on 
what are the needs, what are the wants, what are the short-term goals, what are the long-term goals? And the most important thing for me is not overwhelming a client with like, you need all of this stuff or else your business is gonna implode. Um, I really like to help people find the focus um, and, and, then, and then just trust the people that you have entrusted to help you accomplish those goals. The, our least favorite clients, which thankfully these days we have pretty much none like this, are the clients who come to you for advice and then, I mean, essentially want to micromanage everything that you're doing and they want to dissect everything and, um, and they impede your ability to do your job. And as a as general counsel, as, as a business sounding board, my job is to clear all of that stuff off the plate of the business owner so that they can focus on what they need to be focusing on, which is developing their own vision and executing their own plans. Now, are there specialty businesses that you work with? Like, have you become really accustomed to a certain industry? Yeah, so a lot of my career so far, and, and it just kind of happened by chance, has been um, working with tech companies, tech startup companies. My personal interests have always been in, in the arts. So, um, and thankfully now that it's not just me on the team, um, it has really opened, opened up my opportunities to focus on, on, on my interests, which are creative professionals, um, we work a lot with nonprofits as well, which are usually tied to some sort of creative endeavors and things like that. Um, so it's mostly, and, and those are, are, are pretty different, but it just has kind of happened by chance, especially in Miami. When I first got started, there weren't a whole lot of attorneys practicing in the tech space and the startup world. Um, and I guess over the years, I've Kind of become known as as one of the few um, Miami attorneys that that have that practice area. Um, thankfully, now I I have support so that when we do get tech work, I have others that can help with you know the with dealing with investor relations and private financings and things like that, so that I can spend my time on my ideal client base, which are the creatives. Yeah. So as far as the, um, the, the new businesses that you're working with, do you find your, there's a certain stage that they come to you, you know, is, or, or would you suggest someone like, Hey, if you're in this stage, you, it's better to talk to an attorney sooner than later. What advice would you have, whether it's a tech company or somebody else? Yeah. So I love people in early stages. Um, and, for creatives, that's a little tricky because a lot of times creatives are so focused on their craft that they're not thinking about themselves as a business. So a lot of our creatives tend to come to us a bit later in the game. I love working with, and I think it's totally the right place to start is as soon as possible. Part of our philosophy is being accessible to small businesses and early stage businesses. They are especially vulnerable because again, a lot of times they don't have huge budgets. So they think, oh man, legal is just gonna like take my entire budget. I can't afford it. 
And that's a, a really risky place to be in because then they're signing developer agreements without understanding what they're agreeing to. They are investing the money that they do have, they're throwing all of it into marketing and sales and developing their reputation without ever taking the step to make sure that they actually can protect and own that brand that they're building. So folks come to us at a lot of stages. I always wish people would come to us sooner um, because again, even just having a consultation, a strategic consultation, can give them a roadmap for what they should be thinking about for the next few steps in their journey. A lot of mistakes get made in the beginning and it, you know, it always ends up costing folks more than if they had just gotten good advice in, in the beginning, which I always hope to be that resource. Yeah, I think one of the characteristics of an entrepreneur is they're just optimistic. You know, yeah. so they've got this, they have this idea and they're optimistic and they just want to run in one direction for a long time. So maybe as a cautionary tale, do you have a couple of like real world examples? I mean, you don't have to name names, but you know, Hey, I had somebody who did this and then this is what can happen on the, on the other side, if you don't plan for it legally. Yeah. So a number of examples, um, Oftentimes it comes in the form of people signing contracts that they don't read or understand. Um, and especially bad contracts, like a contract that was written by somebody else who wrote it themselves or downloaded it from the internet or something like that. And I have seen that play out like in the tech world, it happens when people are hiring developers and to develop a software, to develop an algorithm is very, very, very expensive. I haven't seen a good software built for less than $100,000, like a really good one. Um, and I have had a number of instances where somebody signed a developer agreement and it wasn't clear on the milestones. It included intellectual property provisions that basically said that the develop the, the dev shop would own all of the related intellectual property in the event of any breach by the company hiring them, um, which when scopes of work exceed initial estimates and those estimates don't have very clearly defined milestones, that has put some people in really bad situations. On the creative side, when they're signing contracts, maybe it's a license agreement or maybe they are performing in a production with a major network. I have seen the instance where they have, again, signed over more of their intellectual property than they ever meant to. I've also seen this happen in commission agreements and gallery agreements where artists and creatives have unintentionally transferred their ownership and their copyrights when maybe they thought they were just licensing it or they were doing it on a commission structure. Um, one of my favorite examples breaks my heart, but like TLC, the, the band from the 90s, they had a terrible management agreement. They, despite you know having won Grammys and, and going platinum, the artists themselves never made a penny. So, Signing contracts without understanding them 
always breaks my heart when I see the consequences for small business owners and creatives. And then the same thing on the trademark side that I had mentioned is people don't look into trademarks as a first step. Their first step is let's get to market, let's get our website, let's get all of this merchandise and this branding and let's pay for marketing and advertising. And then tens of thousands of dollars later, they get a cease and desist because somebody already owns the trademark. Or at that point, they're like, okay, things are, are working. Now let's do a trademark. And sometimes we have the very unfortunate position of having to say, you guys, you can't, you're not going to get this trademark registered. And now you have to redo everything and rebuild a whole new reputation. So those are the two big ones that, that always are hard for me to see for clients. And so what is like an initial consultation like for you? So if you're meeting a new tech company that's looking to do something, you just do a, a conversation to find out where they're at and say, all right, here are the two most important things you need to do with where you're at. Like the, the story you told about the, the software. Yeah, if one of the founders is not a programmer, I would use the analogy of if I went in and somebody told me I had something wrong with my car, I have no idea to, whether they were, did they just need to replace a valve or if they need to rebuild the engine. So if you're building a software type of product and you don't know how to go in and vet the work that you could just get strung along indefinitely, what are the things that you would talk to about a new business or someone who comes to you for the first time? Yeah. So when someone engages us for a strategic consultation, which is very robust, um, just recently we onboarded a new client and he is a tech company and he's got a lot going on. And the first thing I said to him was, before I'm going to take any money from you to do any work that you think you need, we need to sit down and look at everything you've already done because he had been signing contractors uh, he had been signing contracts, he had been onboarding advisors, he was looking for a co-founder, and he was signing contracts left and right. And without, and, and so I said, we need to take a look at what you've already done. And that's exactly what we did. He sent me everything, I reviewed everything. Immediately, I was able to identify red flags and yellow flags. Um, he did have a development agreement, which while it was mostly okay, the company that he told me was doing the work was not the company that signed the agreement. And I asked him this, I said, but this is the company. And he said, no, but it's this company. And I said, but that's not what this says. And it turned out to be the case that both companies, they're kind of like sister companies and one company is running the operations and the other is doing, is doing the actual work. What I found in the development agreement was that there was no like chain of confidentiality or chain of ownership. So everything was just between my client and the contracting party without any protections in place to say that if that company is using outsourced work or another contractor to actually do the work that they're also bound to the agreement and that they are assigning intellectual property and things like that. So the first thing is like, let's look at what you have whether clients have a whole lot or they have nothing, and then compare it to what we're looking to accomplish. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I 
usually it's more than just two things. Like usually I will lay out like, this is probably what you're going to need for the next like 18 months. But these, to your point, these are the most important ones. These are the ones that you should really be focusing on now. These are the red flags that need to get straightened out immediately. And then again, like whether the client tries to DIY it themselves or entrust us to help them with it, they have a roadmap. It's almost, I've had it compared to like a health checkup, but it's a legal checkup and a business checkup. Um, and clients have, have been finding it really helpful because it informs them. They now know what they didn't know. Well, Jessica, uh, thank you very much for enlightening us on, on some of these uh, issues that people can look out for. I think the, what is it, a, a penny of prevention is worth a pound of cure or something like that. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave the audience with that we didn't cover? Just keep working hard, keep doing good work. And if ever, you know, anybody has any questions or wants to meet, I, I always love meeting folks. So I'm totally here as a resource for, for anybody. Thanks for listening to the Legal Mastermind Podcast. If you're interested in working with Ryan and Chase, please email mastermind at marketmymarket.com. Make sure to join the free mastermind group for growing and managing your firm at lawfirmmastermind.com. Ryan Klein and Chase Williams are the managing partners at Market My Market, one of the top legal marketing companies in the United States.